Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm your host for this episode, Zach Griffiths, Senior Investment Grade Strategist. Joining me today is Logan Miller, our Head of European Strategy, and Miriam Ali, our Senior Consumer Analyst covering the food and beverage and home and personal care sectors. Thank you both for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks, Zach. All right, Logan, let's start with you. I know we just put out a note kind of taking a look at the Euro consumer and retail sector from a holistic perspective and digging into the sectors specifically as we look ahead to the year end 2023 and 2024. Can you kind of start with your high level views in terms of your outlook for European credit and how that fits in with our thoughts on the consumer and retail sector? Yeah, Zach. So we obviously did a deep dive into the Euro consumer sector, like you mentioned. I think it's Worth noting that it's a good kind of linkage between our overall views on European credit from a strategy standpoint and a nice outline of kind of the bigger economic factors that are driving the consumer space within Europe and, and UK markets. And then obviously a kind of a deep dive into credit specific topics. But just from the strategy perspective, you know, I think it's worth by starting to look back at the series of events that have transpired over the past year or so. And European markets have really been able to successfully overcome a series of major challenges that in years past would have likely set off a more prolonged chain reaction across markets globally. And we've certainly seen episodes where Europeans sort of at the core of a lot of the macro driven volatility across global markets. You know, the first major challenge started around this time last year when inflation across Europe and the UK really started to pick up momentum, and we saw a swift reaction by the ECB and the Bank of England to tighten policy in wake of that. Both central banks were hiking you know, 50 to 75 basis points last autumn at each of their meetings, which really sparked a major repricing across both fixed income and currency markets. We saw some pretty sizable devaluation of the pound and the euro versus the US dollar. We saw treasury or sovereign bonds really kind of crash, especially from the gilt market. So a lot of you know, substantial volatility across sovereign bond markets uh, at this point last year. Then in combination with the many UK budget crisis last fall, for instance, caused the Bank of England to actually step in and, and provide liquidity in order to prevent another financial crisis amid a fallout of, of UK pension funds. So that was one major challenge. Fast forward a few months from then, and the risks across U.S. regional banks emerged for somewhat overlapping reasons, uh, leading to massive deposit outflows from a handful of banks. We saw sharply wider spreads across the global banking sector and an even more material hit to subordinated credit issued out of that sector. 
And then soon after that, a continued liquidity crisis forced Swiss regulators to step in and orchestrate a highly complex merger between two of the country's largest commercial banks in, in order to restore confidence in the sector and avoid broader contagion risks across the global financial market. And despite all these headwinds, in addition to continued tightening by central banks throughout most of this year and inflation remaining above key policymaker targets, European credit spreads have been able to recover substantially over the last six months and, in fact, actually recently hit their tightest level since early March prior to the fallout of a few of those U.S. regional banks. And then obviously the last couple of weeks have been a little bit more challenging given the backdrop of rising global yields. But all that to say that in the background of all these pronounced events, investors have been strategically moving up in quality as fears about a potential recession continue to loom and the unknown risks of another liquidity event perhaps happening in the next 12 months uh, really remain the wild cards into, into 2024. Yeah, it's been an interesting 12 months, certainly for macro markets. And it's been interesting to see how well I'd say corporate credit has held in globally. And so just to level set in terms of your thinking over the near term, what are our spread targets from an index level perspective for Euro investment grade and high yield? Yeah, so we obviously came out with our third quarter outlook and we're a bit more cautious on European credit for a variety of reasons that we've outlined from kind of tighter central bank policy to kind of a weaker growth potential out of the Eurozone. But you know, I'd say overall, we're looking for spreads to kind of widen modestly through the end of the year. We have IG spreads in Europe kind of pegged around 175 basis points. We're trading right around 150 basis points or so. But you know, overall, broadly speaking, investor demand for European credit has remained largely intact, which is a little bit of a surprise to us, just given how far yields have come. And typically, if you look back over the past decade or so, European credit investors have really been used to ultra low yields. We had negative yielding European credit credit yields you know, over the past 10 years or so, kind of multiple times. And so kind of this recalibration to higher yields has really been sort of a surprise to us how strong we've seen demand kind of hold up, obviously with some choppiness along the way. But, you know, it does appear that each kind of incremental step up in, in corporate bond yields is met with some pretty good demand, which is a bit of a surprise to us again. But I think from sort of a sector positioning standpoint, the result has been a rotation into both defensive and kind of counter cyclical pockets of the market rather than a wholesale exodus from the asset class, again, with some nuances there. But I think one of the key sectors that has benefited from this kind of defensive rotation investor demand is, has been the consumer and retail segment. And despite a long kind of list of headwinds moving against the European and, and UK consumers, such as housing costs, you know, the, with the mortgage repricing still very much in the background, you've had super high inflation, relative valuations across the European consumer retail sector as a whole have been by and large resilient. If you look at Euro IG, consumer retail spreads have traded in a range of 25 to 45 basis points inside of the Euro IG senior non-financial index over the course of 2023, which really we view as a function of stable cash flows for most issuers, mostly healthy balance sheets, and a savviness of companies to recalibrate operating models to higher costs. And in the Euro high yield market, the consumer retail segment historically traded at a rather steep discount compared to the overall market, particularly heading into 2023 on expectations for 
some material consumer weakness. But if you look at yields across that sector, they've declined sharply over the last six months and now basically trade flat to the euro non-financial index. So in terms of kind of overall positioning, given our continued cautious stance on the euro IG market, like I mentioned, we view IG consumer retail as, as sort of a buy and hold sector with a market weight allocation, but really a strategy focused around credit selection, which I'm sure we'll get into on this podcast. You know, it's difficult to make a compelling case for the sector to outperform the overall market with IG consumer retail spreads wrapped around 105 basis points or so. Euro IG as a whole is trading at about 150 basis points. So clearly well inside of the overall market. And the upside from spread tightening does appear kind of incremental at best compared to other non-financial sectors. And as one of the tightest trading sectors of the Euro IG market, the potential carry generated by spreads would notably underperform the overall market and kind of a sideways to, to tighter trading market. If you look at since 2012, from a kind of a historical performance perspective, the consumer retail has outperformed on an excess return basis only two years over that period, both in 2018 and 2022, both which were years where we saw a meaningful spread widening across the broader market. So certainly it's been a defensive sector and we think valuations just basically are, are sort of a market weight allocation towards that space. And then moving down the rating spectrum and high yield consumer retail, you know, year to date performance has been largely driven by a recovery rally following some pretty substantial total return losses across the sector in, in 2022. So heading into this year, the sector was, was pricing in, again, material weakness in the European and UK consumer economies. But as spending has held mostly firm and, and fears about an impending recession has have largely subsided, a select group of credits has really propelled total returns across the sector over the past nine months, uh, which we'll obviously get into more detail as well. But nonetheless, the consumer retail is on track to, to post one of its strongest relative total return years since 2012, with year-to-date gains topping 9% this year, compared to around 6.5% for the universe of non-financial double B and single B rated credit. So in aggregate, we expect this positive momentum to, in the sector to decelerate as relative value attractiveness fades and the potential for labor market softening to bring renewed risks to credit most aligned with the economic cycle remain kind of in the background. So that's kind of our overall uh, view on, on positioning. Thanks, Logan. That's extremely helpful in kind of framing up not only our views from a holistic market perspective, but thinking about consumer and retail in Europe from a holistic and relative value perspective. I think that's a perfect segue to bring Miriam in to dig into the subsectors a little bit and have her comment on her high level views for the food and beverage and, and home and personal care sector. So Miriam, can you kind of take us through how you're thinking about your sector and sort of your recommendations going forward? Uh, yeah, sure thing. Taking a step back a bit, I think it's interesting that at the beginning of the year, a lot of the clients we spoke to expressed a lot of concern about how consumer spending might materialize this year. Fast forward nine months, we're not really having the same conversations as much. Um, and just to echo what Logan mentioned about the strength of the market being a bit of a surprise, but I don't think we can be complacent about it. Overall, I would say at a global level, consumer spending on food and bev has remained quite resilient in the circumstances. Yes, companies are seeing slightly weaker volumes, but it's better than management expectations and also relative to historical trends. So we've had a number of companies say now that even if volumes are a bit weaker, it's actually much better than what they had modeled. 
That said, I think Europe has definitely been a recurring weak spot across the food and bev space. So just to take the example of a few of the global players who have good reach and visibility on different geographies, Unilever's Europe division was the only geography to see volume decline in the first half of this year. And that weakness was especially prevalent in categories like nutrition and ice cream. I think that reflects the fact that the private label offering for these categories is actually quite strong. And we have seen an increase in customers switching to private label options, i.e. supermarket-owned label. And there has also been an uptick in the popularity of value and discounted channels. Then you've got Nestle, which is the world's largest food and bev company. So management there has said that demand elasticity has been limited at the group level, but has been a little higher in Europe, especially after new pricing came into effect at the end of the first quarter. On that topic, actually, I think it's important to highlight that the overall messaging we've been hearing from companies is that price increases will slow down going forward. There might be a few select actions across specific countries and SKUs, but the focus really is going to be on recovering volumes in the second half of this year and going into 2024. Well, certainly would be helpful for the ECB to see these price increases start to come down a fair bit. And it sounds like while the Eurozone economy as a whole has clearly outperformed relative to what were really fairly dire forecasts for the year around this time last year, are there any sectors or names in your sector that have been particularly more resilient and, and where would you expect that to continue or how do you expect that to continue in terms of you know breaking down operations? certainly been interesting to see how resilient really the global economy has been in the face of pretty substantial tightening coming into this year. I think certainly the Eurozone economy overall has outperformed, but starting to see signs of weakness, signs of the impact of all of the monetary policy tightening we've seen over the past 18 months or so. And to you, Miriam, are there any names or even sectors in your coverage that have been more resilient up to this point? that you expect to continue going forward? Yes, certainly, Zach. But just before I discuss those names and sectors, um, I would say that on our side, we're very much focused on employment metrics as we think about growth going forward. I think the argument until now has been that as long as employment metrics hold up, then that should bode well for consumer spending. And by and large, that has been what we've seen so far. But looking ahead, I would highlight that UK unemployment metrics have ticked up, though Eurozone rates remain at all-time lows. And also, I think it's worth reiterating that, yes, consumer confidence has recovered from its lows, but it's still at historically depressed levels. And I think that means that the consumer is still in a somewhat fragile state of mind, and it might not take a lot to knock that off course. But coming back to your main question about particularly resilient companies or categories, I think there are two areas in particular I would highlight. So firstly, the Coke bottlers. So here in Europe, we cover the Coke bottlers, not the Coca-Cola company itself. And just for our listeners who might not be familiar with how the model works, the Coca-Cola company basically sells its concentrate to the bottlers who then package and distribute the products in the countries that they have agreements to do so. I would say Coke as a brand has been fairly resilient across Europe maybe a bit more so in Western Europe than in Eastern Europe. But this resilient doesn't come as a surprise to us because the theme that we've been harping on about in the past year or so is branding power. 
Essentially, if you have a strong brand, you are in a strong position to be able to pass on price increases and consumers will prioritize your products over others. And frankly, you don't get many brands much bigger than Coca-Cola. In terms of subcategories, I would highlight beauty cosmetics has been the clear standout across various names within our coverage. Actually, it's been quite spectacular how strong the category has been. So if you just take the example of L'Oreal, which is a global cosmetics giant, it posted 18% like-for-like sales growth in Europe during the first half of this year. And what's particularly impressive is that this has been driven by pricing and volume. And we do think this can continue going forward because the category is supported by sector fundamentals, including premiumization, growing interest and focus on skincare. And after the pandemic, there's definitely been an uptick in focus on self-care and health. But just to wrap up with a broader look at our picks and pans in the space. Um, so in uh, IG, our top picks are Carlsberg, Coca-Cola Euro-Pacific Partners and JDE Peets. So Coca-Cola Euro-Pacific Partners for a number of reasons, including what I discussed about branding power, Plus, the company has posted very solid operational momentum in recent years. And also, the company might be in the market at some point to finance its proposed acquisition of a majority stake in Coca-Cola Beverages Philippines, which will cost about 1 billion euros. And we think that issuance could present an attractive entry point into the credit. But broadly, in a tight sector, we think the names that I just mentioned offer relatively attractive spreads, i.e. JDE Peets, which is a coffee company and or solid fundamentals versus close peers. Carlsberg in particular, the beer company, I would highlight as a name where we would be comfortable going for the spread pickup versus peers like ABM, Bev and Heineken. Yes, there is a little bit of a Russia overhang because the assets were seized, but I think investors have been looking at the business excluding Russia for a while now, and the rest of the business has been very strong, so we don't see any reason for the new CEO to instigate any major changes. On the other hand, we have underperform recommendations on Danone and Heineken. For Danone, we don't think valuation is particularly attractive for a company that is still in the relatively early stages of a turnaround agenda. And we also think that some of Danone's key categories, um, for example, dairy and bottled water, could be more vulnerable to downtrading trends if the consumer environment deteriorates. So these are more commoditized categories and unlike Coke, for example, doesn't exactly benefit from the same branding power. In the case of Heineken, it was the standout weakness during first half results. Its softness in Europe was in line with expectations, but demand deteriorated more than expected in Asia Pacific, which led to management downgrading profit guidance. So by country, Vietnam and Nigeria saw especially weak performance, highlighting the risk of emerging market exposure during volatile macro environment. And again, as I mentioned, we see more attractive opportunities elsewhere in the brewer space. Within high yield across food and bev, we like Nomad Foods and Premier Foods for their defensive credentials. But valuation is no longer as attractive as it once was. So we've got a market perform recommendation on these names. We do have a buy recommendation on Upfield, which is the spreads company that was spun off um, from Unilever a few years ago. But we continue to highlight that Upfield bonds are amongst the most volatile in our high yield consumer coverage. And these really are only suitable for investors with high risk appetite.
That's a lot of great stuff to take away there. I think it's a good mix of some outperforms and more constructive outlooks from a fundamental perspective. You got Carlsberg from, from a relative value perspective. Pretty amazing to hear that operating performance from L'Oreal, even in kind of a, a tighter global macro environment. So I, I think that's really helpful to kind of frame up where we're seeing the most value and perhaps the most fundamentally strong performance. And so moving on, and I know this is a little bit outside your space, but trying to pull together some of the key takeaways from our report in the retail and grocer space, how do they stack up relative to, you know, the food and beverage wholesalers we just discussed and, and how does that fit into our broader outlook and view on the overall Euro consumer sector? Yeah, so from a credit perspective, the big difference between the food and bev companies and the grocers in Europe is the margin profile. Both subsectors benefit from pretty decent balance sheets and healthy cash flows, but margins are the big differentiator. So just for example, Carrefour is a triple B rated French grocer. It has EBITDA margins of around 5%. And that compares with, say, 18% for a similarly rated French food company, Danone. What you have to remember is that grocery is a very cutthroat business with enormous levels of competition. They're all operating on relatively slim margins, yet fighting to retain, attract or regain customers. And we've seen that discounters have made ground in market share in this environment as a result of the intense competition. Specifically for the grocers this year, there has been a big push into private label. And for the grocers specifically, this is important in terms of margin development. Because on own label stuff, the grocers have more control over stuff like pricing, packaging, production, etc. And therefore, that gives them more control over private label margins. But that's clearly not the case when it comes to the national brands that they're buying from the big food and bev guys. Overall, consumers have been quite receptive to these private label options. As I mentioned earlier, we have seen some weakness in volumes in food and bev, and private label really has been the big beneficiary of that. Just in terms of the outlook, we have heard some encouraging things from the grocers recently. So in recent reporting, Waitrose, which is part of the John Lewis partnership, and Ocado have seen quarterly exit rates with positive volume evolution. That's probably been supported by the slowdown in in inflation and also improved sentiment, which should also bode well for the food and bev companies as well. Pretty astounding difference in margins there. So I think that's important to keep in mind as you kind of think about the difference when you try to characterize the consumer broadly. It's important to remember some of the, the dichotomies across sectors there. And I know we've moved around our recommendations a little bit in the space, but are there any names you'd like to highlight? in terms of clear picks and pans for the grocery space? Yes, certainly. So I would highlight that we have positive views on Marks & Spencer, the cooperative group and Iceland Foods in the high yield UK grocery space. In the Euro market, French food retailer Picard is our top pick. All of these companies have demonstrated strong operational momentum in the uncertain environment. On the other hand, we have less favorable views on Asda and Morrison's. Each are trying to balance a heavily indebted balance sheet and associated high interest costs in the intensely competitive trading environment, which is a tall order at the best of times. In the IG space, we have underperformed recommendations on Ushon and Metro on the grocer side. Each have significant exposure to Russia. And in our view, spreads do not adequately reflect the risks there. That's great. And 
kind of bring it all together. I know we've covered a lot and we want to touch on quickly, at least the non-food or discretionary retail. How are you thinking about discretionary spending? I know we've highlighted some signs that the consumer is, is losing some steam. You know, we do have a challenging macro backdrop, I'd say globally. And so with growth expected to fall or at least moderate even further and, and interest rates remaining elevated, kind of what's our outlook there and, and are there any picks and pans that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, I think one key difference I would highlight between grocery and hospitality at the moment is that hospitality is continuing to hike prices at the moment as needed, whereas grocers have now begun to pass on the benefit of lower input costs to customers. So in the UK already, we've seen the price of milk and bread, um, these key products coming down in a bid to entice customers back into their stores. On the hospitality side, we've seen that Burger King France and Stonegate, which is a pub company, so they've taken upward pricing action recently. So that could include stuff like premiumized offers. And Stonegate has actually resorted to surge pricing on beer in the evenings and on the weekends. So basically that what they've been doing is increasing the price of their drinks at busier times. And Stonegate management has noticed some price elasticity from these increases. So this is definitely something we will be monitoring on the hospitality side. Elsewhere, we've seen moderate um, to mid-single-digit volume declines in certain highly discretionary product categories, such as consumer electronics, furniture, and DIY products. Things like personal computers and IT equipment suffered from, well, benefited from a pull forward of demand during COVID. So subsequently, they've seen a drop in sales and that has continued into 2023. But overall, premium products have proved to be resilient. And again, I would highlight that beauty and fragrance category has been very strong. And this has benefited names like Coty and Douglas. And the other subcategory I would highlight is travel. Travel has seen a strong post-COVID boom, and thus far, there are no real signs that consumers want to cut back on holiday spending. And if anything, it's moved up the pecking order after years of restrictions. So I think I would say we can't be complacent. There, I think there are set categories that are set to be weaker than others. And for us investors, I think it really will come down to keen credit selection, especially on the discretionary side. So overall, not feeling as downbeat as we were this time last year. Reasons to be cautiously optimistic, but credit selection is definitely the key takeaway, I would say. Yeah, I think that's going to be an important theme going forward as, as we navigate choppy waters. This has been really helpful. And for our clients listening that haven't checked out the report, check it out. And if you have any questions for Logan, Miriam, or myself, or any of the other authors, please reach out using the Ask an Analyst button. And with that, we'll wrap it up. Logan and Miriam, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Zach. All right. Thank you all for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on the next episode of No More, Risk Better. Thanks. Credit Sykes Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is credit sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by credit sites or its affiliates.